Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers and mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. No, 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 don't do that. Trying to embarrass me. At least they made, they made it without making a disaster. I was, I was, I was getting scared all through. Anyway, no, guys, thanks. Thanks for the intro. And, um, well, if, if you're new here, can I say um, it's nice to have you around. Um, also, I think there are one or two people we've seen before, but maybe not seen again. And seeing you here again, it's really, it's really, really nice. Um, so we titled this. Well, this is, uh, we're, we're trying to have two events where we're trying to reach out to people. And so this one is really focused on guys who have not identified themselves as Christians. Believe it or not, in a religious city like Lagos, there are some people that aren't. And some of us here may actually be saying that secretly and don't want to voice out our real um, uh, thoughts because you, you don't want to be banished from your homes, you don't want to lose your education, or you don't want to lose your pocket money. But... Um, we said, why believe despite the hypocrisy of Christians? But now, really, with that question, we're trying to catch so many things. It's not just the hypocrisy of Christians. There are many things that are underneath that. And also, I would say, if you're also a Christian here, you're welcome, because some of us do have questions. Some of us do have doubts. We have not gone out of the faith, but we're struggling with certain things that people pose to us, and we're not really able to answer. So I do hope for those of us that are not Christians, this will spark a good conversation. For those of us who are Christians, maybe this will be helpful to you. Now, obviously, as a pastor, I believe everything that Christianity said. Well, I, I don't know everything, but I, all the ones that I know, I believe. But it wasn't always like that. I grew up in a Christian home, but I wasn't really a Christian until my final year in uh, university in the mid-2000s. Uh, mid after that, I became an ardent, um, even maybe an ardent, an obnoxious, and ignorant proponent of the faith. I remember a friend of mine. I just, I just become a Christian, but I became a Christian under very dramatic means. It was really some. I had got a message about the fact that the world was going to end in 2008. Believe it or not, right? So we were heading up to this nuclear atomic war that was going to happen in 2008, right? So I was hearing this around 2004. And if you go to the book of Revelation, we had this three and a half years kind of thing. So towards the end of 2008, uh, towards the end of 2004, you can see where it's going. And it made sense to me. If you go to Matthew chapter 24, there will be wars, rumors of wars. So I had this friend. We've been very close throughout the uni. And I was taken into his house one day. I basically almost locked the door. And I read Matthew 24 to him. And I'm like, guy, do you want to die? And he said, well... You know, I'm not sure about this thing. I said, no, 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 what are you not sure about? Rumors of wars. Did you watch the news? Disasters. Didn't you see the tsunami? I mean, what? Jesus is coming. You have to accept. And the guy was like, ah, I'm not sure. I'm like, guy, okay, I'll read it again. So obviously, after I read it like four times, the guy said, yeah, I'll be a Christian. And he got out of the, you know, he got out of the car, and he was, he was able to go. And by the time I left Nigeria, one of the things that um, uh, changed, hopefully, matured me afterwards, I met... I was just surrounded by many non-Christians. I mean, people who were, you know, very self-evident non-Christians. And they became my friends. One of them was, he was, um, he was Thai. He was from Thailand. He was a liberal gay uh, Buddhist. Another one, she was, we worked together. She was a millennial German feminist. All right? Um, then there was another one. This one was really good. This guy, this was, she was Chinese. She was, I don't even know how to call her atheist. She was, she really just didn't care. You know, she's Chinese, she's a Chinese engineer. I told God, you know, like, I, it doesn't mean anything to me. By the time I returned, I met um, a, well, Faith, you like this, he was a, a Wafi a photographer, right? Or he was also an African traditionalist. Now, all of these people are friends, right? And I started to see that, well, people don't believe not just because, you know, well, you the traditional way I would have done it, and maybe some of you have done this, but the Bible says that the fool says in his heart that there is no... Uh -huh. So he's a fool. Don't mind him. 
that kind of thing. I'm like, okay, you're a fool. I'm going to try and make you wise. If you don't believe it, that's why you're a fool, you know? But these people were fools. These people had genuine questions. And so some of us here may have some of those kinds of questions. Now, living in Lagos with our different experiences, those questions will vary. And I can't answer all of those questions, partly because I'm not that smart. I, don't, I can't answer everything. But at the same time, we have time limitations. So with the time that I have, I want to try to look at three different things. For people that come to the church will know that it was always going to be three, wasn't it? <laughs> all right. Three different things. But after that, try to answer questions that I think that some of the challenges that we face. And then after that, I'll try and say some things about Christianity. But there are three things I want to look at. One. You may say, someone may be here and say, Christianity is anti-intellectual and all about money. One. Two, Christianity has committed massive number of atrocities. Two. And then the third one is Christianity is a white man's religion bent on getting rid of our African culture. All right? So let's start with the first one. It's all about money and it's very, very anti-intellectual. Now, in 1980... There was a Nigerian that sang a song, and I quote, the song where goes somewhere, some part of the song goes something like this. I welcome any village anywhere in Africa. I welcome any village anywhere in Africa. Pastor's house, name they find pass. My people, them, they stay for poor surroundings. Pastor's dress, name they clean pass. Yeah. It hard for my people, for them to buy soap. Pastor, name they give respect pass. Well, not my wife, but anyway, and then they do bad, 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 bad things through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Ah, I knew, I knew. The people that said I mean are not part of this church, but Fela was right. Let's say it. Fela was right. That was the song coming for head of state at that time. What he was addressing was the established churches, whether it was Catholic, Methodist, or Anglicans. They were less than pure. You know, in fact, they were, it's not just that they were mute on the poor moral behavior of the wealthiest people in their congregation. It was that even the senior clerics baptized corrupt military governments at the time. At best, there was a deafening silence from them. They wouldn't speak about, I mean, 79 to 83 was one of the most corrupt periods in this country. So at best, they won't, they'll be silent about it. And at worst, there'll be willful collusion in absolving them of any guilt. In fact, the head of state at that time was a Christian who was mentioned in that song, I will not lend his name to protect the guilty. <laughs> but Fela was not only right, he was prophetic. Because many of the practices of our current churches today will make the clerics of Fela's time look like Mother Teresa. Right? Some of us know this. I mean, too many non-Christians have thought of dabbling into Christianity. That same friend of mine, Fast forward a couple of years after he had his master's in the UK, he returned. At this time, I was still there. And he, he, he had a lot of issues in his life. And so he started thinking, maybe I should try this God thing. But he was in Scotland. And he went to a Church of God, a Church of Scotland church. Now, if you want to know, Church of Scotland church, the average age there is about 62, 63. Right? That's the average age. So that means they may have some people that are older than that. So he went into that church. It was small. There were like eight people there. Maybe they've been there for like 50 years. Let's just say he didn't get the solution to his problems there. He didn't think so. So he came back to Nigeria. We connected with one of our other friends. She's quite really into the thing. And so she decided to take him for a camp. I mean, if you want to really try this thing, why don't you just come full on? And so he went for the camp. They were fasting. He really didn't understand what they were saying. The pastor was talking about money, and he was like, well, you know, I don't know. And he didn't want to be offensive. He's saying stuff like, you know, I don't know. Maybe this thing is good for you people. But that guy really does seem like, you know, he's really pushing the boundaries of, of intellect. And, and we know this. And since then, unfortunately, he's, he's really having nothing to do with it again. I remember seeing a particular preacher. He comes at least, he's American, but he comes at least three times a year to this country. I saw him on TV. And he was talking about people in debt. And he said, look, he was talking about people getting rich. And he was talking about this, so this amount of money, and you'll get this. And then he stopped. And, and I'm sorry, this is utterly disgusting. But he said, some of you are in debt here. You have massive debt. Because he was asking for $1,000. And he said, well, God has told him that they should sow $1,000. Obviously, you don't have the money. He said, but you have a credit card. 
Now, some of us here, precisely because of things like this, you find Christianity to be something that you don't want to try. You know, it's not just that it, you see it as a bit of a scam and a bit of a sham, really. And many people have been shown to be what they've been. Some of us maybe have had encounters with these kinds of people. But it's not just that. You also find that, and maybe this annoys you a lot, you find that some of the reasons, some of the ways people are being told to bring their money, you'll be like, well, you know, if you had, if you, because some of these people will say, I know them at work, or I know them from school, I'd be like, if only you just thought in the same way you think in school, you see that this thing actually doesn't make sense. And then the person retorts to you, yes, it can't make sense because this is faith. Reason is what we do outside, but when we come to the church, it's all about faith. If you say, well, I think this guy, this leader, is really scamming things here, and then the person says, oh, no, no, you shouldn't do that because touch not my anointed and do my prophet. So all of a sudden, you now feel, if I'm going to try Christianity, this is the solution. This is the thing that, that you feel this is the choice that you need to make. It's either I choose faith or reason. It's either I choose faith, blind faith, which has no evidence or nothing, or I choose reason. And I know some of us have already made our choice already. Now, however, if your choice was simply based on that, that kind of that form of Christianity as a reason, I would say this, and maybe challenge you now, would be that maybe you should display some kind of intellectual honesty. Why do I say that? Because you should know, if you don't know, that there are, throughout history, there have been many intellectual powerhouses that were Christians, both now and then. For instance, if you take in the sciences, someone like Francis Bacon, Franz Bacon was an the person that established the scientific method. When we talk about, you take the logic, the rational aspect, and the empirical, and then you try and put them together. He was the one, first uh, British, well, first, he was the first person, um, a, a scientist, to be knighted. Or take Isaac Newton, who propounded the law of gravity, and was the most important scientist of his generation. Or take someone like Galileo. Now, for a long time, as you know, we, the world believed in this thing that you call geocentrism. That is, the earth was the center of the world. But Galileo was one of the first people that said, no, it's heliocentrism. That is, it's the sun that is at the center of the world. He was an absolutely brilliant mind. He wasn't just an astronomer. He was a scientist. He was a philosopher. And people like Galileo said, and this is what Galileo said. He said, I do not feel obliged to believe that the same God who has endowed us with senses, reason, and intellect has intended us to forego their use and by some other means to give us knowledge which we can attain by them. He would not require us to deny sense and reason in physical matters which are set before our eyes and minds by direct experience or necessary demonstration. I can even go into Francis Collins, head of the Human Genome Project, but one of the most brilliant scientists in the world today. Or even bring it back home. Let's not talk about scientists. Forget your tribe, forget what you, you, you probably, if we can put that aside, one of the best legal, political, and philosophical minds Nigeria has ever had is Obafemi Awolowo, and he was a devout Methodist. You see, the thing with all of these people, and I can't name all of them, is they will not tell you that I am a Christian, but you know this other thing is there, right? My Christianity stays here, and my faith, or my, my work, and my science says no. They will tell you that they were inspired to continue in their intellectual pursuit not despite their Christianity, but because of their Christianity. And so it's not this thing where, well, I'm going to church, can we park our brain outside, go inside, do all you need to do, because now it's about the spirit, and then you go out, drop the spirit, and then pick up your brain. They say, no, the God of the Bible actually pushes us to have a much more reasonable faith. And so that we should discern these things, these practices, and say, well, I think there is something wrong here. So would you at least acknowledge that not all of the kind of Christianity that you see today is the one that is also in existence? These people would not have believed this kind of sword seed doctrine and all of these things that are here. You see, Fela was not only right and prophetic, back to Fela, of course, but he was also late. You see, what Fela said in 1980 is what Jesus said even almost more than 2,000 years ago. 
Jesus talking to his disciples said, Beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor and banquets. He's saying, look, the religious leaders of the day, they are like, uh, the way they were then is still the same way they are now. But listen to what he then goes on to say. He says, they devolve widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. You see, it's just like one of the, you go to some parts of the world that maybe, you know, betting and gambling has been legalized and is run amok. What do you know about where most of the betting centers are? Do you know where they are? They're not in the posh places. They're not even in the middle class places. You know where they are? They're mostly where the poor people are. That is why this thing is very serious. Because for many of the people who saw into this thing and all of those, actually, it's mostly the poor and the vulnerable that are actually at risk. And Jesus is saying it's not that they were being too Christian, they weren't being Christian enough. You see, Jesus is saying um, the Bible's view about money is much more nuanced. It speaks about the dangers of riches and also the pain of poverty. It's neither a poverty gospel or a prosperity gospel. In Proverbs, it says, give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread, otherwise I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and still and so dishonor the name of my God. It's much more balanced. It's not saying that people cannot get rich, but it's saying that the rich people have to be careful about the dangers and also that they should be aware of the plight of the poor and so that there is a kind of symbiotic equality and that's why it says that about certain rich people that are generous, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor and their righteousness endures forever. In short, people who behave against these examples in the Bible, it's not so much an argument to be unchristian or less Christian. It's really one to say that we should be truly and more Christian. All right, second one, you say, okay, well, nah, I hear that. But you know you Christians have done really terrible things, very, very terrible things. People in the name of the Lord have done terrible things. Well, I, I think you, I probably know more terrible things that we've done than you. You know, there's the 11th to the 13th century crusades, yes. The 15th to the 19th century Spanish Inquisition, yes. 15th to 19th century slave trade, transatlantic slave trade. 19th, 20th century colonialism. 20th century apartheid. 20th, uh, 20th century segregation, and even more recently, 21st century Nigerian pastors advocating murder. Now, if you're expecting me to deny these things, and you know, I, I wouldn't, because these people did it in the name of the Lord. I mean, some of these things I'm talking about, if you take apartheid, if you take segregation, people actually pointed to parts in the Bible, or even the slave trade, they pointed to parts in the Bible that could they used it to justify. Some people said that blacks were three-fifths humans because we were the sons of Ham, and Ham was under a curse. So as Christians, if you are here, you don't say, well, no, 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 no. We have to own this. But, and this is a very, very big but, for the sake of piety, let me just mention four names to you. One, King Kim Jong-un, responsible for the death of four million of his own people. Mao Zedong, blamed for the death of 20 to 67 million of his own fellow comrades. Pol Pot, estimated to have killed 2 million people, 2 million of his fellow Cambodians. Now, when you compare it to the other ones, it seems pale, right? 2 million. They were about 6 million people. A third of the population. And then the one with the highest honor, Joseph Stalin, responsible for about 10 to 60 million people, the death of his own people. These men combined made the 20th century the bloodiest century in human history. In fact, the 20th century, more people were killed in the 20th century than the 19th centuries all combined put together. And guess what they all had in common? They were staunch atheists. I mean, they didn't believe in God. The late Russian Nobel Prize winner, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, gave this remark when he was asked to account for the brutal tragedies carried under Stalin and the other communist regimes. Listen, it's a bit of a, small, a long quote, but he says this. 
Over half a century ago, while I was still a child, I recall hearing a number of old people after the after uh, uh, I recall hearing a number of old people offer the following explanation for the great disasters that had befallen Russia. Quote, men have forgotten God. Well, that's why all these things happened, they said. Now, since then, I have spent nigh 50 years of working on the history of revolution. In the process, I have read hundreds of books, collected hundreds of personal testimonies, and have already contributed eight volumes of my own toward the effort of clearing away the rubble left by that upheaval. But, and he's saying, look, I have done all the research. You know all those old people, they just give, they, they just say simple things. They just say, this, it, men have forgotten God. I have spent 50 years researching this thing. I've written eight volumes. I've read countless books. He said, but if I were asked today to formulate as concisely as possible the main cause of the ruinous revolution that swallowed up 60 million of our people, I could not put it more accurately than to repeat, men have forgotten God. That's why all this happened. Now, I know what you're saying. If you're an atheist or you're not a true believer, that is not the kind of person that I am, and I would agree with you. So can I say also that there are some Christians that will say some of the things that happened, that is not the Christian that I am. Would you give them the same charity that we expect us to give you? You see, plus all those atrocities that you point to, Again, can I appeal to your intellectual honesty? You still also have to admit, with all credible historians and sociologists, that Christians, especially when they are rooted in their faith, have done an enormous amount of good. In fact, it's taken for granted now that the largest charitable organization in the world has ever known is the Christian church. If you don't believe me, listen to what a, uh, the respected British writer, who is an atheist, Matthew Paris, said just a few years ago. Now, this one is even a longer quote, but this is the last quote I'll give you. Traveling in Malawi refreshed another belief. He grew up in Africa. So he, 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 I'm just quoting from um, a part of the article. So traveling in Malawi refreshed another belief, too. One I have been trying to banish all my life, but an observation I have been unable to avoid since my African childhood. It confounds my ideological beliefs, stubbornly refuses to fit my worldview, and has embarrassed my growing belief that there is no God. Now, a confirmed atheist, I have become convinced of the enormous contribution that Christian evangelism makes in Africa, sharply distinct from the work of secular NGOs, government projects, and international aid efforts. These alone will not do. Education and, tra education and training alone will not do. In Africa, Christianity changes people's hearts. It brings a spiritual transformation. The rebirth is real. The change is good. See, I used to avoid this truth by applauding, as you can, the practical work of mission churches in Africa. It's a pity, I would say, that salvation is part of the package. But churches, in, uh, but Christians, black and white, working in Africa, do heal the sick, do teach people to read and write. And only the severest kind of secularist, listen, only the severest kind of secularist could see a mission hospital or a school and say the world would be, it would, the world would be better without it. I would allow that if faith was needed to motivate missionaries to help, then fine. But what counted was the help, not the faith. You see what he's saying? Okay, these things that you believe which aren't true, right? I'm happy at least that those things are the things that motivate you to do this thing. But those things are bonkers, right? But at least I like what that thing that you're doing is. So how he settled it in his mind was, I applaud the work that they do. The faith, well, that's another thing. He said, but this does not fit the facts. Faith does more than support the missionary. It is also transferred to its flock. This is the effect that matters so immensely and which I cannot help observe. Do you see what he's saying here? This is an atheistic man who is actually gay as well, right? He cannot bring himself to believe, but he says this. After you've put all the atrocities that you think that Christians have done, and some of those things like the Crusades have been exaggerated. I'm not saying they're good, but I'm saying they're exaggerated. After you've put all that, and you can see that also people who don't believe have actually committed atrocities, he would say, look, the amount of good that the Christians have done far outweighs that. And it's not despite their faith, but because of their faith. I mean, let me put it this way. Let me please come. 
Now, Yemi, I want to ask you a couple of questions. I want to, I want to, I want to know. I'm going to ask Yemi a couple of questions, and I want to be sure that I'm really describing his wife. I've met his wife before, and I want to say something. So, Yemi, I'll ask you questions. All you need to do is say yes or no. Okay. Yemi, do you have a wife? Yes, I do. Yemi, is her name Faye? Yes. But I think Faye is from Abia State. No. No, okay. Well, all right. But, 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 but Faye studied in Nigeria in a, in a secondary school? Yes. Faye has some siblings? Yeah, and I think she has about seven brothers. No. Oh, okay. But 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 Faye also has dual citizenship. No. No, she does because I think she's also from Tanzania. Her mom is from Tanzania, isn't she? Someone else. No. All right, but she works in investment banking. Yes. Okay, but but you know she's got one child. Yes. Um, that boy, what's his name? Tommy. No. no. Okay, and um, Faye Faye loves her pastor. The answer is yes. <laughs> the answer is yes. Have a seat. So now, the final question. Did I describe your wife? Was that your wife I described? No. But I got some parts, didn't I? Yeah, but you missed it. No. But I missed it, you see. So sometimes the fact that someone says that they are Christians doesn't always mean that they are Christians. The fact that you say that you go to church, the fact that you say that, well, I am a Christian, but you do the things that Christ tells you not to do or the Bible tells you not to do. The same Christ said, Love your enemies and those who despitefully use you. Or turn the other cheek when you've been persecuted. Or don't overcome evil with evil, but overcome evil with good. Or vengeance belongs to God and to no other individual, Christian, or church. The mere fact that someone does these things, but flagrantly disobeys all of these things, you shouldn't be asking whether or not the person, I mean, after all, this is, is a Christian, is, like Jesus Christ said, I will say on the last day, some will come to meet me and say, I did this in your name, I did that in your name, and say, depart from me. I did not know you. Or, why do you call me Lord and you do not do what I say? For all those atrocities, you also have people who, when they have been consistent with their faith, have done remarkable things, like Archbishop Desmond Tutu. Because of his faith, he fought against apartheid. Or like William Wilberforce, because of his faith, eventually brought the abolition of the slave trade in Britain. Or people like Martin Luther King Jr., because of his faith, fought against American segregation. Even lost his life. These people were being very Christian and not less. When they asked Martin Luther King, when he was trying to appeal, he wasn't appealing to the end of uh, the quality of humankind that white segregation was. He wasn't saying, he was saying, let justice roll down like mountains and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. He was quoting the Bible. All right, so that's the second one. And then the third one, which is probably the slightly, slightly longest one. White man's religion bent on getting rid of our African culture. Huh? They want to take away our culture. Now, let's backtrack a little bit. How did Christianity come to Africa? Well, largely, let's be honest, through the white man, right? At this time, the epicenter of Christianity was in Europe. And I got news for you, most people in Europe are white. All right? So they came. In fact, it was so, it was so spread that people even had established churches. By an established church, I mean this was the official church of the, of the, of the nation. Now, so they sent out many missionaries to come and save the black man who was, you know, in darkness. He was in darkness spiritually. He was in darkness economically. But really, the missionaries sometimes did collude with this evil system that we now know as colonialism. They came on the wings of colonialism. Sometimes, unfortunately, think about it this way. It was like the carrot and the stick, right? The stick was the imperial military force. And then the carrot was... You know, and why don't you worship this God? A lot of their preaching was not just converting from the uh, idolatry and the African traditional religions that we had, but they were also saying that you should convert from your life to the European way of life. In fact, sometimes it was really less about the Bible. It was really more about converting to a European way of life. So what do we say to this? First of all, that is true. We have to own it. But second, can I say pause a little bit? Why are we so antagonistic to the white man's religion 
but not to the white man's technology. Can I see your phones? Raise it up. Raise, raise. All of you with phones. Raise it up. Come on. Come on. You have phones. Raise it up. If you don't raise it up, I don't, be, I don't even if I, you are not a Christian, I'll pour down the fire of God upon you. Let's see. Raise it up. How many of them were made in Abba? Tedo, I know your own is definitely made in Abba. So, right? How many of them were made in Tanzania? How many of them were made in Kenya? No, we don't want the, we want to reject the white man's religion, but it's not his technology. What about the white man's clothes? Uh, the white man's clothes. You are wearing a polo Ralph, right? That one is an Arsenal jersey. None of those, maybe it was made in Abba. Let's look at touch. All right. Now, some of you say, no, 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 no. I only wear African prints, like Timmy Dion, right? I only wear African prints. I'm going back to my roots, born in Africa. Who knows that song? Anybody? Dr. Alban now. Anyway, I'm going back to African roots. And, you know, the prints. Yes, but you're using the white man's cut as well. Before, uh, Barbariga was like going down there. Now everybody, especially the ones with flat stomach, now the thing is now slim, slim cut, isn't it? Right, the ladies, before it was Iran Buba, now the, sh the dresses are somewhere here. Is that what Africans used to do? No, it's the white man's thing. So why don't you reject the white man's thing, uh, uh, his cut, his clothing or not? Why are you using their cars? Aren't this thing invading our culture and eroding our culture? If we truly want to be fully consistent, since the white man has brought his religion and obviously he wants to control us, why don't we just get rid of everything with the white man? And let us then return to an idealistic African past. When we sat down under the coconut tree, we drank palm wine, we sang, you know, we sang songs to our children, everything was tales, tales by moonlight, right? There was no mosquito, everything was fine. No wars. Now, don't forget that before the white man came, how many of us have read Simon, um, uh, Sam, Samuel Johnson's um, um, The Words of Yorubas? Right? It's a book just uh, around the turn of the 20th century. Go and read of the words that are happening 500 years before that. Right? There's a reason why we, Jebu, survived. We are very strong. Don't try us. Anyway, but you know, our so called idealis idealistic past, intertribal and ethnic conflict. How about infant mortality? The children were dying, severely high. It's only come down now because of what? The white man's medicine. Uh -huh. In our so-called idealistic past as well, don't forget we used to kill twin babies. In our so-called idealistic past, our tribe, even still until now, still consider women inferior to men. And you want to go back? Besides, when we talk about the African culture or the European culture, that's a bit of a misnomer. East Africans are different to West Africans. West Africans are different to Southern Africans. In many ways, Igbos are different to Yorubas as well. Right? I always wanted to be like my uh, our driver when we were growing up from Delta. I love the way he used to talk about things. He said that when time he was the last born, and there were like 12 sisters before him. But when it was time to eat, right, they put the food down. His father was there. His father would eat. His father would talk, whatever. He'd take his meat. You know who was second to eat meat? He was the one. I was wondering why I wasn't born in that place of Delta. So I one day I told my mom, Mommy, do you know that I should be taking meat? She looked at me. My friend, will you get away from here? I'm Yoruba. And you talk about the African culture. African culture. There's no monolithic African culture. Cultures have always evolved. When you start to, whether it's trade with other people, we start to have influences. Yes, there's a certain core, but that core itself changes over a period of time. And more importantly, here's what we say, what, what we really mean when we say, let's get rid of the African, let's, let's not allow the white man's culture to actually, and religion to actually change us. Here's what we're saying, because most people are here, is this. This culture is right because it's my culture. Their culture is right because it's their culture. You see, it's not whether or not the things in my culture are good or, or wrong, period. It's it is my culture, and that's why it's right for me. It's his culture, and that's why it's right for him. So we are basically setting up a relativistic system. It's right for you if you belong there, and it's right for me if I belong there. Truth doesn't really matter. There's no absolute truth in that kind of way of thinking. But the irony of this is when you tell me that there is no absolute truth, do you mean that in an absolute way? You see, you are basically trying to throw out a relativistic system, but you are saying it in an absolute way. Basically, your, 
your argument self-destruct. We all will still say, whether or not it's their culture or not, it is wrong for people to have to sleep with children, isn't it? He said, no, 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 no. You see, my cult, in my culture, it's okay for us to sleep with five-year-old girls. He said, my friend, I don't care what your culture is. That is crazy, right? So all of a sudden, we know that there is objective and absolute truth. The question we should be asking is, whether it's the white man's religion or is it, is this true? And you know what? Let's even be honest. This Christianity that we're talking about, if you want to get your facts straight, is not really the white man's religion historically. The founder of Christianity was not a European, was he? He was from the Middle East. And most of the early Christians, and even ancient Christianity today, was the Middle East. And that has, look, Christianity is very different to most religions. Let me see that slide. It's very different to most religions because it's always been cosmopolitan. So look, look this. These are Hindus, right? 99.3% of Hindus are where? Asia Pacific. And it's not really Asia Pacific, it's what? India. All right? Another religion, next one, is the Jews, right? Because the Jews, after the, after, you know, the Holocaust, you know, America accepted them, all right? And then after that, they also started, um, they, start, they went back to Israel in their own land and all that, you know, 948. So 43% of Jews are in America, 40% of Jews are in Israel, right? Again, you see this geographic um, thing that, is, that pulls other religions. Move on. Muslims, while you have them largest here, is really because Indonesia is the most populous uh, Muslim country in the world. But you have so many people in Asia. But we always know it's really concentrated in Asia and the Middle East, all right? And some parts of, of Sub-Saharan Africa, all right? What, where, where, where is, go back. Where's Islam? Go back. Islam in, South, in Latin America. This is just so small. And then you have the um, unaffiliated unaffiliated who people that say they don't believe you may say no um, no that's not a religion that's not it's not a religion uh, well if you take things like Taoism or Shintoism they don't believe in any God they really don't believe in God you believe in some kind of philosophy and then you take secularists as well and so you still see it concentrated in another part and then you come to Christianity and Christianity whose religion really is it anyway I mean, it's the, place, the Middle East where it started from is actually the place that it's least represented. It's 12% in North America. It's 24% in Latin America. It's 25% in Europe. It's 23% in Africa. So again, when we say the white man's religion, historically it wasn't, it wasn't started by a white man. And up until today, it's not really owned by the white man. It's spread across all places. And you know why? At least we as Christians, we see it as a command a promise, a prophecy, and a promise. If Jesus Christ is really, really who he said he is, he told all his disciples that they should go out into all nations. And we see that prophecy being fulfilled. And that's why, for some of us, it's still proof that Christianity is true. All right. So let me end with those three points there. And I'm sure, hopefully, there are questions that are coming in. But quickly... Very quickly, I want to say something about the case for Christ. Just one thing. There are many things that um, I still think some people would say, well, okay, there's, there are issues here. How do you prove this, you know, the resurrection, all of those things? But one of the things that people challenge us with is that you follow a book that the, 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 the latest of those books were written 2,000 years ago. I mean, we've, been, we've progressed. We have iPhones, for goodness sake. You know, and you're still going to be following that book? Somebody found its way into your iPhones. I don't know why. But how reliable can that Bible be? I'm sure there are so many errors inside it, right? I'm sure people have actually written up these stories. I'm, you know, a lot of people, some of other religions, they had some kind of virgin birth, resurrection. So, so maybe this whole thing has been combined. It's a bit of a farce. How are we going to believe? We can't know that it's true. If we can't really know that it's true because the records are not reliable, how can we then follow the commands? And you're actually asking, you're asking a very good question. How can we know that the Bible here was really written? Did Jesus Christ really exist? Did he die? Did he rise again? If the Bible is not reliable in his record, then there's no way we can test. Well, you can't prove anything in the past 100%, right? The only way you can do that is by video recording, okay? But even video recording itself, if you watch this, you know, 
if you want 24 destination, what's that one? What's the big one? Designated, so, all right? If you want some of those things, you even know that your eyes can even deceive you when it comes to videos, all right? But when we wanted, when historians want to discern issues about historical figures, right, and they are, they are more accurate writings, right, they, to have a high level of confidence and credibility, they pointed, two things are most important. Please follow this. Two things are most important to get the credibility of a historic document. The first one is the span between the original copy and the copy. The original and then the copy. That's what, the span between the original and the copy, and then the number of copies available. What do I mean by that? All right. Uh, greater than clock eyes? Great. Where are you? Just raise up your hand. You're so great. You will succeed. All right, you will succeed. Get there. I see you. I see you. Oh, masters. Uh, we allow you. What well, was well, you better put your hand down? We don't want liars in this place. Now, uh, let's use Ty. Ah, no, Ty will. Let's not use Pelumi. Pelumi. You went to uh, that great university, the greatest university obviously in Nigeria. You went there, where, what period? To what period? 08 to 2012. Right. Let's take, let's take 08 to 20. to 20. Okay, yes, 08 to 2012. So she was there. Pelumi was there. Now, during the time that you were there, let's say someone, uh, there was an event that happened. There was a fire at Morimi Hall. It will never happen, I know. It's Morimi, it can't happen. But there was a fire at Morimi Hall in 2010. In 2010. 60 years later, a book is being written. And that book is being written, and it says that there was a fire in Jaja Hall in 2010. And it was caused by some uh, prostitutes that visited the guys who didn't pay them for their service. How did that debauched um, analogy come into my mind? I wonder. But that's what they wrote. Now, at this point, that's what they've written. Pelumi and some of her friends, now at this point, maybe they're close to being in an old people's home. All right? They're like 87. But they can still read. She still has these glasses, these, these thick glasses. And she's able to read. And Pelumi says, ah, ah. Biola, ah, you're on right? It's a lie. Now, and Biola and Pelumi and 80 of the people that were still alive write an editorial in the piece. The person who wrote that there was a fire in Morimi, in Jaja, the person was 25. Who would you believe? That editorial or that person that wrote? Huh? Who? The editorial. Why? I'll tell you why. There are two reasons. They were, they were still present when the, the people that, um, the, 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 the time that that thing happened, there were still eyewitnesses that were still present today. Even though they were 60 years removed, they were still there. Two, it wasn't only just Pelumi. There were 79 other people that spoke. Do you understand? I hope you can hear me. This rain, I don't know who sent it. I was about to say thunder fire the rain, but you know, I can't even say that. All right. Do you see 80 people as opposed to one? And then they were closer to the event than the 25-year-old that wasn't born. Another way could be that it could have been 100 years after someone wrote because the grandmother told the mother and then told the, the person. And another person writes something 500 years after. Most likely, who would you believe? So the further away you are from the record, the less reliable you are. But also, the number of copies that you have also helps. There were 80 people. So like if I have a manuscript, 200 of them, and 198 don't have a particular word in a sentence, but two of them have. Most likely, which will you believe? So you will say that they've inserted, somebody has inserted it. Why? Because 198 over 200, that, that probability is 99% sure, all right? So if we know those, those are what historians use. Now, Dami, next slide. I want to show you something. These are historical documents, right? And just really look here and here. All right, so you have people like Lucretius, 
you know, Herodotus, Aristophanes, right? And you look at the, the approximate time span between the original copy, so like for Lucretius's uh, writings, it was 1,000 what? 100 years far away. How many copies does it have? So when they say accuracy of copies, who knows? It may have been false, all right? Now, how many of us have heard of Plato, Aristotle, Julius Caesar? All right, next slide. Let's look at those people. Can you hear? Can you hear me? All right. Now, Plato, very well celebrated, the Republic, his book, you know, a wise man. Plato's writings, the earliest between the original and copy is what? 1,200 years. And how many copies? So, but we still believe that Plato wrote what he wrote. There were seven copies, right? 1,200 years. We don't know how reliable it could be, but that's Plato. And then you come down to Caesar. Caesar's own is 1,000 years, but he has 10 copies. So he's a bit more accurate. We can, ooh, we can believe Caesar much more than Plato, isn't it? Right? So it's more accurate. But then you come down, let's forget Aristotle. Homer, the Iliad, Iliad, you know, this story of the siege of um, um, Troy, Troy, the Trojan Wars. That one just, I mean, it outstrips all of them. Look at that. 500 years alone between the original copy and the, the, the first copy. 500 years. And how many copies does it have? 643. That's why they can measure the accuracy. Look, it is more accurate to believe that Achilles, who was having a problem with Agamemnon, it's more accurate to believe that Achilles lived than Plato actually lived. 95%. Now, all of us, whether you don't believe in Christianity or not, we take all of these facts as, you know, given. Why do we take it? Because we believe the historians, and the historians have done their work. When it comes to the New Testament, ah, but who knows? Next slide. How long, how, how, wait, hold on. How well do you think the New Testament measures up to this? Next slide. Less than 100 years. How many copies? No, not, fi not 500, not 600, not 1,000. 5,600 copies. What is the level of accuracy at that point? 99.5%. Take this. There is no better attested person in all of antiquity, better attested to person in all of antiquity than the person of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not arguing just as a Christian. This is a normal historical method. And so the question then becomes, it's not really the reliability. Maybe it is really what the Bible says you should do. That's why we then start to question the reliability. You see, if you're not a Christian here, Christianity isn't just about the facts, even though we've tried to lay it out. It's not just about the intellect. I can tell you why the assumptions of the fact that you have a creator God is the only basis for which you can really do science. All of those things are there. But Christianity is much more than that. It's something that is motivated by the kind of love you and I can never really understand. You see, in the Christian story, it basically says that there was a God who created the world and he made it good. And he created man, he gave them freedom to do what they wanted to do. But he said, look, this world will only work if you actually follow my rules. And my rule basically is this, I'm God, you are not. And if I'm God, you are not, I actually make the rules, you don't. All men did, and what men continue to do today is that we like to say, no, God, we are gods and you're not. And that's what the Bible calls sin. It's really just rebellion. You're trying to occupy a position that you really don't and shouldn't. Look, it's beyond your pay grade. And he said, really, once you do that, it's just a time bomb. Everything doesn't work. Yes, I know that there are beautiful fountains. The Dory Hills is a wonderful place. All of that. Ebate is very nice. But it gives you a big stomach as well. It's like what the, um, that British rock band, that song um, in the mid-90s, Verve, the song was Bittersweet Symphony. That's how life really feels. And for many of us, it's much more bitter than sweet. Why? It's because we really mock things up. 
And therefore, in that regard, because many of us cry justice, when we see, when we hear that somebody has killed uh, another person, what do we do? We cry for justice. When we hear that somebody has kidnapped a, 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 a little toddler, we cry for justice. And God is saying, well, if you want that justice, eh, look at yourself. And all of us are toast. But if we had this God that was just really of justice, that wouldn't be enough. He is also a God of love. The consequences of our sin, he doesn't pour out upon us. He pours out on his own son. So that when we trust in him, we don't become perfect. We don't have all our lives sorted out. But one, we are free from, this, from the tyranny of the real thing that actually enslaves us. It's called sin. And we're also free from the consequences of that sin. And if we really, truly trust in Christ, it's not just that. It restores us in a relationship with God. It restores us into a more favorable relationship with him. It's not a relationship that guarantees your bank account will, ne- will always be swelling even though there is a recession or that your wife will continue to have wonderful features even though she's now 70. No, it, that, that is, just doesn't make any sense. It means that you'll be able to confront the issues in life even when you have lost a child. Somehow you find the strength to move on. Even when your enemy persecutes you, somehow you find the strength to forgive. Why? Because he has also forgiven you in Christ. This is what Christianity is. It means that you are not under the pressure of trying to work your career to define yourself so that if you fail, you are crushed. But if you, don't, if you succeed, you look down on people. It's no, I have already been free. Christ is the one that defines me. Therefore, I do my work diligently as a service to him. This is the heart of Christianity. And that's what makes us care for our neighbors. It's what makes us love the poor. And it's what makes us serve, because God has served us in Christ. Thank you for listening to the Gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus. Love people, love Lagos.